It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, I'm so glad you're here. The Covenant of Water is truly one of the most gripping, exquisite novels I have ever read. And I've been reading since I was three. It's my 101st book club pick. I'm so enthralled with this epic story. I think of it as a modern masterpiece. And now I'm excited for you to hear our captivating conversation with the brilliantly talented author, Dr. Abraham Verghese. What an honor to be with you. On this six-part podcast, we're diving into all 10 parts of The Covenant of Water. That is the best Bye Felicia moment I ever read. (laughs) We'll also hear from readers like you. What was the hard truth that you hope to convey in writing this book? Hmm. Well, thank you for that very thoughtful question. Come along with me on a soulful, extraordinary journey through adventure, family secrets, medical mysteries, romance, and finally, the shimmering resilience of the human spirit. This is The Covenant of Water, the podcast. Hi, everybody. This is episode two of our special series on my latest book club pick, The Covenant of Water. I just love saying that title. Welcome to our Super Soul listeners. Hey, and new listeners joining us for a conversation about a book that is overflowing with spiritual teachings. I'm telling you, the reason I'm doing this series is because I knew that you all were gonna wanna go deeper into the book, into the story. And on this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the characters and shocking plot twists in parts one and part two of the book. Now, I have to say, this is a spiritual book, but it's also a jaw dropper that keeps you on the edge of your seat. And it's a modern masterpiece is what I'm calling it. I'm with the author of this modern masterpiece, Abraham Verghese. And we're gonna also hear questions from all of you readers. Uh, So I want to get started. Before we jump into the story, let's talk about the language. You use words in the traditional Indian language. How do you say Malayalam? (laughs) Whenever, I don't know about you all, sometimes I hear a word I didn't know and I just go, yeah. Yeah, it is is cumbersome and uh, Malayalam. 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 Okay. And if you speak Malayalam, you are a Malayali. Ah, Malayalam, which is spoken in the state of Kerala, right? Kerala. Ka- Kerala. Kerala. Not yeah. Kerala. No. Kerala, yeah. where the story mainly takes place. And some readers may have struggled with the language at first, but I'm telling you, if you're like me, you, you just start to adjust. 
and you can figure things out. Like I figured out the mundu is something wrapped around. I don't know if it comes all the way up here, but so let's go through some of them. Amachi. Yes. Means mother. Mother. Okay. Big Achen or Achen? Achen means Achen. father. Okay. It's usually a senior person. Yeah. Okay. Baby Mall is short for Malé, right? Yes, a mall means daughter. Uh -huh. and you can say it affectionately as Mole. Mole is yeah, daughter. daughter. Okay. Mone is son. Son. And I asked you this before. What are the, the toddy tappers? I was trying to figure out what were the toddy tappers. <laughs> well, have you had toddy? I've had toddy. Well, so the way they get toddy is they climb up the tree to the fruiting palm. Mm -hmm. And typically these are men who have a little belt in which there is a knife and there's this little hammer. Actually, it's a bone of a buffalo's femur, I believe. And they take it and hammer on that fruit mm -hmm. and they stick a little cup, invert a cup on it. And every day there will be fruit collected and they pour that into their receptacle, which is also on their be belt. Uh -huh. And they come down, they do this every single day. And that morning toddy is very sweet and delicious. By evening, it's a little sour but it's very potent mm. and it's like you know from the in the morning it's like i don't know fruit juice by evening it's tequila is the transition that takes okay. place okay all right and how do you pronounce parambil just the way you did i did parambil and pulayan pulayan yes yeah and pulayan is the caste group mostly found in the southern part of india well, it's found, the, the caste is found all over India and has different names in different parts of India. So Adivasis is a term for it in the North India. But in this region, Pulean was the term for, okay. uh, for someone of that caste. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike. And that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. Okay, so let's kick things off with part one. Let's start off by hearing from uh, one of our readers, Danny, who has a question. Hi, Oprah. Hi, Abraham. My name is Danny. And uh, honestly, The Covenant of Water is the best book I've ever read. And trust me, I'm not just saying that. But I was wondering, 
Uh, over the course of the book, many of the main characters are referred to by general terms, like Big Amachi, uh, Baby Mole, Husband, and not referred to by birth name. And in fact, we only learn of Big Amachi's birth name on page uh, 458. And so my question is, what was the intention behind this? Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think I was reflecting what struck me as a child is that everybody seemed to have a pet name. Mm -hmm. So uh, my name is Abraham Verghese, but I have a pet name. So there's a whole core of family members. What's your pet name? Uh, Sajan, S-A-J-A-N, mm -hmm. which means, believe it or not, beloved. Oh, nice. <laughs> but the only people who call me that are my, my mom and dad, my mm -hmm. brothers, uh, mm -hmm. and a few other people. Mm -hmm. So there's... And then one also has in Kerala very often, by your profession, you get another nickname. So you become Goodyear Sajjan or Goodyear Baby, you know. Mm -hmm. and so people know you by three different names and they may not know your other name. So there's always this playful confusion. But with Big Amachi, her character, I just love the idea. And it's a bit of a conceit of beginning with someone who's, you know, seems like, you know, a 12-year-old girl, what's she going to do? But to have her grow, uh, you know, in her faith, in her consistency, in her unwillingness to give up into this giant of a person so that she's not named and the moment she's named is, you know, when you have really come to see all these qualities in her. Till then, she's non-specifically Amachi, her mother to Jojo. Her husband doesn't even use her name. But right. Never. End, he never calls her anything. He barely actually, speaks. Yeah, which is actually true. Often husbands and wives will not call each other by their name. They'll just say, listen, you know, or the equivalent in Malayalam. I don't know why. I always Malayalam, find it yes. The family in the book are St. Thomas Christians, and some people may not know this, but uh, it's believed that St. Thomas, the apostle known as Downing Thomas for... Uh, doubting that Jesus was resurrected, went all the way to southern India. Can you briefly explain to us what are St. Thomas Christians? We believe that St. Thomas the Apostle landed on the coast of India, just the same way St. Peter made his way to Rome, the apostles scattered. And this is not a far-fetched belief because there was a vigorous trade uh, in spices along this whole coast, western coast of Kerala, where my parents are from. Uh, spices grow wild there, pepper, clove, cardamom. And the Arab sailors would catch the trade winds in their Latin sails, in their dows, and come down, pick up all these spices, and when the trade winds reversed, they'd go back to Florence mm -hmm. or uh, Venice and sell them for fortunes. Yeah. And so it's quite conceivable that St. Thomas... Uh, and a number of his followers could have arrived there. But tradition has it that he arrived there, converted locals, Brahmins, to Christianity, and that core group has now grown into this large community, small by Indian standards, but relatively large uh, otherwise. I was looking for the passage in the book where you describe how spices had taken over that whole land and how important, uh, uh, vital they were. One of our readers, Marielle, has a question about one of the very first lines of the book. Marielle? Hi, I'm Marielle, and I found the first line of the book to be incredibly striking. The saddest day of a girl's life is her wedding day. I'm curious what you meant by this and where the inspiration came from. 
Yeah, I think uh, it's actually not the very first line. I think it's the second mm -hmm. line. Um, and we actually debated whether it was to be the first line or not. But the trouble with putting that as the first line, it's not clear who the character is. You haven't even introduced them. So my editor, in his wisdom, thought the second line was the better place for it. And I sort of agreed. Um, I mean, I think I put that phrase in because it's the thing that struck me very often when I was observing my cousins' weddings, and they weren't necessarily, they were of age, they were not 12-year-olds by any means, but there was a sadness because you've grown up in this one ancestral home, and the day of your wedding is the day that your roots to that home are pretty much over. You now have a new home and all your future and everything you've ever known everything you've ever and known you're so young yeah and unlike the sons the youngest son is going to keep that place yes. take care of the parents uh, the older brothers might get a share of the property until very recently women didn't actually inherit any of the property i know and interestingly it was arundhati roy whose mother sued and took it all the way to the supreme court that got this corrected uh, the only other novel people seem to know set in the same community uh, is The God of Small Things, and mm -hmm. it's the very same community. So I think I was struck by the fact that this leaving of the bride from the house is filled with sort of a sadness because they'll never have any entitlement to that house ever again. How did the idea for the condition, because we know the story begins in 1900 with a 12-year-old girl entering an arranged marriage to a 40-year-old widower who has a tragic family history. At least one member of every generation has died from drowning. And in the book, Amachi calls it the condition. How did that idea come to you? Well, I was struck again by the observing these marriages of cousins and so on. Mm -hmm. The arranged marriage system is a very mm -hmm. elaborate form of the dating system, except that you don't date, you're just, you know, yeah. you just pick someone, but it's picked very selectively based on family It's tradition. arranged, she moves into the house, and in this case, she doesn't go to his bed for another four years. Exactly. Yes. But given that this is how marriage takes place. It doesn't take much to torpedo a girl's reputation, more the girls than the boys. You know, someone will say, oh, there's a history of convulsions in this family. Oh, there's lunacy in the family. And so there's a lot of rumor that can affect someone's lives and also a lot of investment in keeping things secret if there really is a problem in the family. And uh, so I was struck by the idea of in Kerala, everybody swims often before they can walk because water is everywhere. You just have to be facile in water. And the idea of a condition or a disease where you could not be in water because you were at great peril uh, fascinated me. And, and as a long-time teacher of medicine, I keep these rare diseases in my back pocket and I pull them out to ask questions of my residents. So I love the idea of a condition that would force a family to keep a secret that was in a place full of water would be a horrible secret to be carrying. Mm. I have to say, the girl marries, you all know this, you're reading the book, moves to Parambil and uh, the 500-acre estate of her new husband, and she's learning how to run a household and to take care of the family, her stepson, Jojo, whose mother has passed. Now, you write one of the most beautiful paragraphs that I know resonated with so many women. In chapter five, husbandry, 
On page 39, you write, Every morning when she reawakens the embers in the hearth, the kitchen welcomes her like a sister with no secrets, and it makes her happy. She's come to believe this has everything to do with the benevolent the presence of Jojo's mother. The cellar may be the spirit's preferred haunt and the place where what is amorphous comes as close as it can to taking physical form. But her spirit also drifts up here, drawn by the crackle of the hearth fire or the voice of her child conversing with his new amici. Why else do the bride's dishes turn out better than she has any right to expect? Since Thangama's recipes are hopelessly muddled in her head, she cannot give all the credit to the seasoned clay pots. No, she's being rewarded for taking loving care of Jojo. She feels one with the rhythm of the house and has the sense she is running it well. I love that. I read that and thought that uh, when you're growing up, you must have really been paying attention to the women in your household. I think I spent a lot of time in my grandmother's kitchen. And, you know, to an outsider, it would have seemed like, you know, not a very distinguished-looking place, you know. Mm -hmm. You had to bend low to get through the, mm -hmm. the low door, and there was a high lintel to keep the chicken and other creatures out. The floor was packed mud. But it's where my grandmother spent 99% of her waking hours. So it was filled with her presence and filled with all the instruments of her daily life. And uh, on those little hearth, hearth fires with coconut shells and pieces of wood, you know, there was always things going. And she was always huffing and blowing and pulling wood out, sticking wood in, mm. our equivalent of turning the gas up yeah. and down. And to me, it became a sacred place. I mean, long after she past it still carried those qualities and so i think i was trying to bring back that sense of how the environment in which one has spent that much time begins to take on a sacred quality so when gail was reading the book um she called me and said no 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 not jojo why did jojo have to die the first of many tragedies uh, befalls Big Amachi when Jojo, uh, her beloved 10-year-old stepson, falls and drowns in an irrigation ditch. I mean, we don't even, it's like, why couldn't he just pick himself up? We don't, we don't know. We don't know. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, 
there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. So one of our readers, Zibby, has a question for you about loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens from the podcast Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And as a mom of four myself, I was so moved by the passage in the beginning with a mother's sense of loss. And I was wondering, Dr. Verghese, how do you write so beautifully about loss? What's the secret to writing about loss? Hmm. Well, lovely question, Zibby. Thank you so much. Um, you know, as I'm, as I'm thinking about it now, and I haven't made this connection before, but when I was uh, a teenager in Ethiopia, living with my parents, two very young boys who were the children of fellow teachers had drowned in a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them slipped in and the older brother tried to jump in and rescue him. And they only found out when the other kids came back and told the mother, they're, they're just playing there and they won't come out of the water. And the mother went running to get them. Um, I don't think I consciously was mirroring that scene, but just as that question came in, I could suddenly see a connection that I hadn't before. I don't know that I'm excessively introducing death more than it exists in our lives. Uh, you know, in my parents' That's lives, what I told Gail, <laughs> yes. My mother recalls losing her beloved older brother when she was young, he was maybe 12. She lost him, I'm sorry, younger brother. She lost him to typhoid. My father, as a boy, recalls his oldest brother getting, been, getting bitten by a dog and a month later being rushed to hospital and brought back because they couldn't do anything. And he was, you know, obviously having delirium and died in a most horrible way. From rabies. Rabies. Mm -hmm. So these are very palpable, real things for that era. I wasn't really bringing more death on, even though that particular death was unusual. But that death is indicative of the peculiar nature of the condition. I like the idea also of the condition being mysterious as it would have been to them in that era. And, you know, in picking 1900 to 1977, not only are there two world wars, not only is there independence from Britain after, you know, centuries of subjugation, but medicine is also making these tremendous leaps and bounds in their knowledge and understanding. So the condition also evolves, and we can explain later, and will, why Jojo drowned in an irrigation dish. Okay, so there's a beautiful passage on page 15, I think really, for me, begins the essence of what the book is all about. In chapter two, To Have and to Hold, you write, the grandmother is certain of a few things. A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener tells the truth about how the world lives. And so unavoidably, it is about families, their victories and wounds, and their departed, including the ghosts who linger. It must offer instructions for living in God's realm, where joy never spares one from sorrow. A good story goes beyond what a forgiving God cares to do. It reconciles families and unburdens them of secrets whose bond is stronger than blood but in their revealing, as in their keeping, secrets can tear a family apart. 
Wow, that last line about how keeping secrets and also revealing them can tear a family apart. I know that is so true. Do you think families can ever avoid the tearing apart? I think it's possible, but it's hard. I think mm. every family has a secret. And, you know, I think sometimes that secret coming to terms with it is the healing event. Sometimes mm. somebody revealing it is the destroying event. Um, by the way, that's the passage that I often choose to read aloud when I am um, these days reading in a bookstore because it foreshadows the whole book. Yeah, you know, it does. Here, here's the grand, little girl when she's a granddaughter. I mean, it says, when the bride becomes a grandmother, she will be asked by her granddaughter, who's her namesake, what was it like? You know, so I love the idea early in a book, giving the reader a, a sense of what's coming. And the grandmother, future grandmother kind of does that. So at the end of part one, still reeling from the shock of Jojo's death, Bigamachi prays to God, Lord, maybe you don't want to cure this for reasons I don't understand, she says, but if you want or can't, please send us someone who can. And that is the foreshadowing of everything that's going to happen in the book. Our reader, Grace, has a question about Bigamachi's faith. Hi, I'm Grace, and as I work on strengthening my own faith, I felt like reading this book, we were given a great example in Big Amachi of what it looked like to live your life with a really strong base of faith. And differently, we were also shown characters like Digby and Elsie, and who maybe didn't have a strong base of faith, and different things that they turned to um, in light of that. So Dr. Verghese, was it intentional for you at all to advocate to have a stronger base of faith in this book? I think it was, uh, thank you for that question. I mean, I think it was very intentional to reflect the way I think many of us wrestle with faith. You know, we, we're either all in or we're, we're not. Uh, we're deeply skeptical. And I think the hardest thing to reconcile faith with is when bad things happen. You think, well, how could a God stand by mm -hmm. and let these things happen to me? And I think it's the, it's the quintessential problem that many of us have often, until you accept that, you know, God's giving us free choice in a natural world that is full of risk and danger and bad things do happen, and God doesn't necessarily control them any more than the good things. Uh, but, I, but I liked playing with that. I like people like Digby who were pretty much atheists because they'd been so horribly dealt cards that they couldn't imagine that God cared anything about them. And then you had people like Bigamichi, who, whose faith is unwavering, and yet God is not pleasing her every, every, every single time, nor does he answer in her time. And, um, you know, so she's praying for help with this condition and finally comes to saying, God, if you can't help, send us someone who can. Um, so I hope that answers the question. It does. There's a powerful exchange between... Amachi and her husband, when she tells him that she's pregnant with their first child. In chapter seven, A Mother Knows, on page 63, you write, she takes his hand and puts it on her belly and smiles at him. He's puzzled, then ever so slowly, understanding shows on his weary features and he smiles. She hears a low exclamation. He squeezes her to him, but then catches himself, fearful of being too rough in his embrace. 
if God gave her one moment in time that she could stretch out for as long as she lives, this would be it. So many people who read this book love that sentence and are reflecting on what is the one moment in time they would like stretched out because it's such a beautiful, comforting idea. Do you have one of those moments for yourself? I think the arrival of my firstborn is, you know, always a, a highlight, mm -hmm. you know, holding a newborn in your arms that's yours. Mm -hmm. This moment is right up there <laughs> talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. I think, though, that scene has its genesis in um, my father. My father is a man of very few words. Mm. I had the pleasure of taking him at one point to see his older brother, and they're very close. And they didn't get to see each other often. And there was so much joy in their reunion, but they didn't have much to say. And I was sitting there trying to jumpstart a conversation, but they were very content to just be with each other. And then when that older brother passed away, my dad went to the funeral and I was talking to him on the phone. I said, Dad, what was it like and how was it for you? And he was just giving me very short, cryptic answers. And, but in answer to that, he said, yes, it was hard, especially when they took out his body and then he didn't say any more. Mm. And I think being around my father my whole lifetime, he's had this unique ability to be eloquent in the things he doesn't say. Mm. Uh, the power of that silence. And uh, in that character of the husband, he very much embodies this quality that I've seen in many of the men on my side of the family where they're eloquent, but not in the way you might think. Mm. So we're going to move on to part two. We're not in India anymore. And I know for so many of you, because this happened to me, you're wondering, is this a whole new book? We're now in Scotland. Where are we? We meet another compelling character in a great struggle, Digby Kilgore. And you paint a searing picture of working class Glasgow, the dialect, and, and you do a pretty good job of it when you're reading the book, I must say. You think so? Yes. It's the first, absolutely the first book I've ever downloaded and listened to. Yes. I'm honored. A lot of firsts for me. Truly honored. Uh, and uh, how did you think of taking us to the other side of the world? How, how did that, how did that, did you, when did you know that was going to happen and why did you decide to do that? I think the enormity of Jojo's passing uh, affected me. I mean, every time I'd revise it, I'd be close to tears or in tears. And I just sensed that the reader needed a break. A break to cleanse their palate and, you know, have some hope that this book wasn't going to be completely morbid. And uh, Digby was a major character in the book, and his childhood, as I had developed him, became more and more interesting to me. Uh, I had spent a year as a child, uh, when, when I was 11, in Birmingham while my father was doing a sabbatical, and we had gone to visit Scotland. And then over the years, I've developed some very good friends in Edinburgh, me medical colleagues. So I have this fondness for Scotland and... Birmingham, England. Birmingham kind of vanished, but Scotland <laughs> stayed as a memorable place. And I know when you say Birmingham here, people think Alabama, but okay. Not that one, right. <laughs> yeah. The other Birmingham. Yeah. Okay. So that's why, and I 
I was intrigued by the character of Digby and his childhood. You can't write about India and physicians in that era without having a lot of Western physicians because that's how it was, especially in high-level positions. And so, as you're going back to one of our original questions about how you start to construct the story, you knew that after Jojo passed, you needed something. Did you know what immediately? Did you know that's where you were going? I have a feeling that much of Digby had begun to be written. It was just a question of where to bring it in. Mm -hmm. There there had been even a point in the writing of this book where we had alternated chapters, one chapter in Parambal, one chapter in Mm -hmm. Glasgow, but it became clear that that didn't work because the timelines were completely different. Right. You know, Parambal was 1900, and then if you jump to 1923 and then come back, you're going to throw off the reader. So I had the Digby information, and it was a question of where do you put it? How and where? And that seemed to be the place to put it. So in Glasgow, Digby Kilgore is born to a single mother, Gwendolyn, who struggles with depression and later dies by suicide. And his father, Archie, is a prize fighter in Philander who abandons them before Digby is born. And you write that Archie Kilgore's real talent was in disappearing. How did all of that childhood trauma affect Digby? Well, I think he's, you know, he's clearly a wounded soul. He's the epitome of the kind of physician we've been talking about who's Mm -hmm. using his profession as a way to heal himself. himself. You know, he's just going to excel at what he does. And I've met many people like that. I mean, I perhaps have some traits in that direction. Uh, It makes you very compulsive and very focused, but it also makes you ignore the real wounds that are festering inside. Because you shut down a lot of other things. You shut it down. Yeah, Yeah. you don't have to think about it. You have this, you know, we have this strange illusion in our head that, you know, because God gives us this chance to take care of others, we're spared from, Mm -hmm. we're spared from illness, disease. So it's often a shock when a physician falls ill. They have a feeling like of betrayal. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Doctors do not make good patients, or do they? Oh, they make terrible patients, you know, so... As I said, I've had the misfortune or privilege of taking care of physicians uh, who were ill and dying. And, you know, you're drawn to them as a comrade in arms fallen on the battlefield. But by definition, they are very difficult patients. You know? Jeannie has a question about Digby. Jeannie? Hi, Oprah. Hi, Dr. Bergesi. I'm Jeannie. And I just want to say thank you so much for bringing The Covenant of Water to us. It is a brilliant novel. And Dr. Bergesi, you are an unbelievable writer. I was particularly moved by the Digby storyline. I loved how he took care of his broken mother in the early part of the novel. And then the novel ended with him taking care of his broken wife. And I was wondering if you had that storyline planned when you started writing the book or if it just occurred uh, organically. Thank you. Wow, thank you for that profound observation. I must say, uh, sometimes I'm scared to answer these questions (laughs) because if I don't answer them, the the reader credits me with this tremendous foresight and genius to make all these detailed plans. Uh, it's only when she said it that I realized that... I could see it on your face. Yeah, You're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> boats were broken. Exactly. There were echoes of his caring for his mother and caring for his his wife. Uh, but it wasn't conscious. I mean, I don't know where this comes from. Um, and again, it's a contract I'm having with this reader. She's choosing to see it in this particular way. But I kind of agree with her. 
you know, in her particular interpretation. Someone yes. else might see it differently. Yeah. Wow, that was an aha for all of us, Jeannie. Thank you. Uh, Digby travels by ship to India to join the Indian Medical Service. He's not able to train as a surgeon in Glasgow because he's Catholic and considered lower class. And on page 93, Banerjee, is that his name? Yes. Banerjee, a fellow passenger from India, explains. In chapter 11, Cast, Banerjee says, You're the victim of a caste system. We've been doing the same thing to each other in India for centuries. The inalienable rights of the Brahmins and the absence of any rights for the untouchables and all the layers in between. Everyone who's looked down on can look down on someone else except the lowest. The British just came along and moved us down a rung. Why was it so important for you to explore the caste system, not only in India, but all over in Europe? I think we are often under the illusion that, especially in India, that caste is something that only we struggle with. But I think it was important to highlight that it exists in many different places at different levels. And in Glasgow, for example, Digby, as a Catholic boy of Irish descent, was being, you know, uh, disadvantaged compared to his Protestant colleagues. And uh, here he is leaving Glasgow for to get more surgical education, going to India. And in that changing of his geography, now he's at the top of the heap. You know, he's the one uh, who's the colonizer with Indians working under him. And Banerjee in that particular passage is sort of educating him about the universality of the caste system and the fact that Digby's position in it has suddenly shifted by getting on the ship and coming here. When uh, Digby arrives in Madras, reporting to Longmere Hospital, he learns that his supervisor is senior civil surgeon Claude Arnold. Claude is arrogant and irresponsible and an alcoholic and reminded me of some of the stories I was hearing about in the tennis partner from those doctors who were going to the you know ad addiction center there. Is that where Claude is modeled from? Huh, again, <laughs> until you ask me that question, I hadn't thought about it, but um, I, don't, I don't think so consciously. I think I was just portraying uh, a, a sort of an upper-class British doctor mm -hmm. uh, immediately m m marking his territory when this, mm -hmm. you know, this obviously Scottish guy with a thick accent comes. Um, and you know, Claude is flawed. He does have a serious alcohol problem, but um, is he a victim of his circumstances and geography, like everybody else? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that Claude is truly a character whose flaws are invisible to him and made him truly uh, as close to writing an evil character as I, as I get. I was going to say Claude's an ass, but I don't <laughs> think you could say Claude's an ass. Anyway, you don't think he's a victim of his circumstances? No, I think that would be letting him off too yeah. easily. Yeah. Let's talk about when Digby meets Celeste at the Christmas party. They bond over their love of art and discover that they're both orphans. You say they're both cut from the fabric of loss. Suffering and loss can often bring people together. Why do you think that is? I think because if you haven't suffered, you, you, you sort of at one level 
or, or rather, if you've suffered, it's hard for other people to identify unless they've walked the same path as you. Mm. So I think people who have suffered deeply find commonality that, uh, that might resist them with anybody else. There's another line later in the book on page 122 uh, that really got to me. It's from Digby about his um, new colleague in India, Honorine. In chapter 15, A Fine Catch, on page 122, you write, For a moment, he's at a loss. She's the only person in Madras to whom he's volunteered the story of his mother's death, the hard years before and after. Secrecy lives in the same rooms as loneliness. His secret and his failing is that after his mother's betrayal, he cannot risk love. I love that line so much. Secrecy lives in the same room as loneliness. It, feel, it felt, it resonated so deeply with me because it just feels like the truth. Where did that line come from? I'll tell you where it came from. I think in researching addiction for my second book, The Tennis Partner, mm-hmm. I you know, kept wondering why does AA work? It's one of the few things that does seem to work. You know, what is it about Alcoholics Anonymous or... Mm-hmm. NA that works. And there's a saying in AA circles that addiction is a disease of secrecy and loneliness. Mm. And what AA does is it makes you give up your secrets and repopulate your world. And so I'm impressed by the fact that I think many doctors are dry drunks in the sense that they're not addicted to anything, mm-hmm. but they are caught up in this secrecy and loneliness. Uh, Sometimes it's the nature of what they're doing that they can't relate to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a choice they've made, but uh, I think that's where that came from. Nina has a question about the love scenes in the book. Nina. I'm Nina Davalori. I really loved the scene with Digby and Celeste when they went to go see the stone sculptures. And even in the intimate scenes that were so beautifully written um, with these characters in your book, there were moments where I, I almost blushed or, um, and, mm-hmm. and because I knew in my mind, I was thinking, Abraham uncle is writing this and we call everyone in our community aunties and uncles out of out of love and respect and I couldn't help but feel a little embarrassed for my inner child and maybe even adult today as I was reading it and now even discussing sex and relationships and being comfortable with our bodies is just something that is very taboo still to this day. Uh, So was there something in your research that you found or maybe experience within your own family um, that lended to this storyline? Well, thank you for that. And if I was smiling when you were talking, (laughs) it's because you were so eloquently putting together what I sometimes feel uh, about passages like this. I think that... um, what I love about Hinduism and especially the statuary that I describe at Mahabalipuram is the exuberance of these sculptures depicting the the love of human beings for each other. And, you know, it's not just gods, it's courtesans. You know, this this is life. This is what God gave us to celebrate and to enjoy. And in contrast to that, I think in our in our St. Thomas Christian culture, uh, the Christianity has given the message that 
these elements are to be somewhat hidden. You don't talk about them. You don't, you know, you don't, you act like they don't ever happen. Uh, men hold hands walking, women hold hands walking, but men and women rarely do. Obviously, a lot's changed now, uh, but I think, you know, Christianity gave us a conservatism in our dealing with things like expressions of affection that are sometimes comical when, in fact, deep, deep tenderness exists. Mm. There's some deep tenderness going on with Digby and Celeste. And then you close part two on a fiery cliffhanger. This is, a, this is one of the, I have to say, gasp out loud moments um, in the book for me. I just couldn't believe it. I had to read it. I think I probably went, I went back and read it, and then I read it again. And then I was like, she pulled the sari from the table. Did she pull off a, 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 a candle with it? What is happening here? So uh, after making passionate love the night before, Digby wakes up to find Celeste burning alive in a fire started by the candle. When did you know Celeste was going down this way? I'm not sure that I totally knew until I began writing that scene. Oh, you know, my I knew goodness. the scene was going to be what? catastrophic. And, I, uh, you know, then once I know... God knows, I must have revisited that, revi revised it countless times because it was so important. But, you know, it was, a, it was a, a beautiful moment where she tells him, I'm not ready for this. You're, you know, your mm -hmm. love is flattering, but I'm breaking free from my husband not to be with you, but to find myself. And, you know, one day maybe it'll be you. And he, you know, reacts with anger, but then he, they seem reconciled and they have what I think is a beautiful moment together where, you know, he's drawing her organs on her skin, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, surface anatomy 101. And, um, and then it ends in this terrible way where Digby wishes that he was the one killed and she had lived, but that was not to be. Where did that come from? Uh, when I was a medical student, it was very vivid in my mind to see young brides in Madras who had been burnt by a silk sari melting around them or, or some sort of composite sari. And often there were suspicions that this had been set by their in-laws or somebody because they were ah. upset that the sprite hadn't brought sufficient dowry. I mean, these are uncommon events, but if you're in a general hospital, the uncommon is magnified because of the extent to which you see these things. So I think that was the, one of the most brutal sights I've ever seen is, you know, a, a woman with a... 80 to 85 percent burn, and uh, and the sari that burned her off this kerosene fire is sort of melted into the the very flesh of her, and uh, one that you know certain sites you feel like leave a scar on you that uh -huh. will never quite go away, and uh, to see it more than once, you know, the second time doesn't deaden you to the first time, or if anything, things are just more intense. When he's in the room and he sees all the blue from his hand, what is happening in the room there? I suppose that's my visualization of what it must have been like for this, for this woman uh, to realize that she was on fire. You know, so the blue for me was partly the paraffin flame, but also partly the synthetic sari, you know, just catching fire. I mean, this is my imagination. I've not actually seen this happened. I've seen the aftermath. What I dreadful. can't believe, Abraham, still, is that you're writing this after you've come home from the Safeway and you're writing this after you've been, you know, in conference rooms and talking to people and 
doing your day job. This is unbelievable to me. You know, but Oprah, this, this is our world. I'm not writing something that's not happened somewhere today. You know, the, this is a, this beautiful, beautiful world we live in has its other side, its underbelly. Most people don't see that, but in a big, busy general hospital, mm -hmm. there are sites that you leave work and you feel that you have nothing in common with anybody you see. Because until they've seen that site, there's just nothing you can relate to them. Mm -hmm. Often I'm writing as an escape. I don't mean that particular scene. But I remember in the HIV era, when I began to get this notion that I need to write to tell the story, I had the distinct sense that by writing fiction, one could transcend the limits of our everyday existence. In my everyday existence, I couldn't make people better. I couldn't get into somebody else's head and know what they're thinking. The, the, the beautiful thing about writing fiction is you can do all these things. You can mm. even go to the dead and report back what things are like. And I think there's a liberation there. Uh, so I think you bring the discipline, you bring the willingness, and you start, you write some stupid words, but, uh, but now, you've, now you've opened the channels and something's going to happen. Not that day, maybe, but you have opened the door and you're going to show your faithfulness. You're going to show up again the next night and the next night. Well, we're showing our faithfulness. That's all the time we have for part one and two, but we're going to be faithful as we continue with the covenant of water. We're on our way deep into the heart of life inside Parambil. Next up, parts three and four of this book, and we will see you then. Thank you, Abraham Borghese. Thank you. I know this novel has made an impact on everyone who reads it, I'd love to hear your thoughts and how it has impacted you. Find us at Oprah's Book Club on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, and check out Oprah Daily for even more about The Covenant of Water and author Abraham Verghese. A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener. The Covenant of Water audiobook is narrated by the author, Abraham Verghese. It's available now wherever books are sold. Until next time, goodbye, everybody. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.